Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good week, and hard to believe we are already into the halfway point of the uh, week. Well, I will say this. We are getting towards the uh, end of this uh, podcast uh, series, but we still have a little bit more work left to go. But I will say that um, based upon... um, From the time I was on the air last with you guys back on uh, Sunday, it was, and up until now, I've seen that there have been about almost uh, 50 plays uh, with regards to the last uh, podcast um, segment um, I did. And the reason why I'm mentioning that number is because, um, for one, it was obviously a very powerful um, podcast uh, segment episode based upon what we are learning about in Rebels at Sea. But two... uh, I personally felt that the episode alone um, should serve as a reminder to all of us that um, even almost 250 years ago, and just right after, during the the eight-year span of the American Revolutionary War, that it wasn't just uh, soldiers on the battlefield who were making the ultimate sacrifice. It was those um, brave men out on the waters, whether they were with a Continental Navy or a State Navy, or or, uh, serving aboard a privateer vessel. All of them made uh, sacrifices, big and small. And yes, uh, not everyone did pass away uh, peacefully. And yes, it was uh, a real travesty to uh, learn just how many men had been uh, placed aboard the Jersey uh, during its time um, as a uh, prisoner ship. you know, it's very easy to uh, take um, freedom for granted. It's very easy to take various things for granted. But we should be reminded that, you know, there, there was a time when um, when war itself, uh, you know, took place. And, um, and just because you were a prisoner of war did not always mean that you were guaranteed uh, to be part of a prisoner exchange. There were many who um, obviously died uh, below, uh, but did so by uh, protecting those uh, from above uh, who were still fighting the uh, who were still fighting for the greater cause and freedom, and that is fighting on uh, battlefields as well as um, along the waters. So, uh, where do we go uh, from this point uh, on? Given that we're not far from the very end uh, to this uh, series. Well, in this uh, podcast um, series uh, segment topic, or rather a segment episode, I should say, we're going to learn about the um, internal challenges that um, took place uh, amongst um, the American um, forces. That is, how did uh, private, how did uh, the privateering industry go about competing with the Navy and the Army? in terms of luring men into the uh, service, or into service, I should say. That's one thing we will learn about. Uh, Other um, things we will be uh, discussing will um, pertain to to whether or not there were uh, critics of privateering. You know, we always like to think that, okay, if if something had successes, even in uh, colonial times, like privateering in the American Revolutionary War, we must. It would be easy to assume that there were no, um, that there were not any uh, forms of criticism about the practice. But we will be surprised to learn that there were those uh, who did criticize, 
and and those who criticized were actually in, within the government uh, itself. So let's be prepared to go as we have a lot to uh, talk about. But uh, here we go, folks. Here's our first layoff question. Were privateersmen seen as a major source of troubling discussion along the American home front? What do you all think? Well, um, believe it or not, folks, uh, yes, uh, there were um, those whom viewed um, privateering as a major um, source of uh, troubling distraction along the American home front. Well, for starters, privateering from Revolutionary War's beginning up until the end was in constant competition between the Continental and State Navies. Secondly, during the war's duration, some officers were known to have left the Navy and went about serving on board privateer vessels as there was greater chance behind making more money, but also due to limited space on naval ships, meaning there would be more constant demand for openings aboard privateers. Well, we do have to uh, keep in mind that, uh, that the American Navy is small, you know, we learned from the uh, recent uh, podcast episode that the total uh, number of naval ships um, that saw actual um, warfare um, action, well, if I'm not mistaken, I think it is fair to say that we learned at some point from a previous um, podcast segment episode um, a while back, that's probably what I should have said a moment ago, but we did learn a while back that... Um, that the number never exceeded 100. And as a matter of fact, um, in this episode, we will learn what the actual number was, but it is fair to say that the number itself of uh, naval vessels under the newly created United States Navy during the American Revolution did not come close to the overall number of uh, privateer vessels. So it would be fair to say that there was a constant form of competition between um, which, uh, which uh, line offered more money over the other. And yes, privateering probably did, but it is fair to say that those who uh, served in the privateering industry were not focused solely on the almighty dollar. They were focused, just like those in the Navy, the, whether it was Continental or State Navy, as uh, they were focused on a, on the mission of, um, of, not, of not only just beating England in war, but uh, securing freedom, short and long term, not only for the present, but for future generations to, um, to live under. Now, if there was one fella who uh, was, in, was uh, within the government, he uh, was one of the um, leading um, critics, or let alone opponent, to the practice of privateering. And it just so happens that the that this fellow who was one of the uh, leading uh, critics behind the pr practice of privateering came from New England. And it's interesting because, you know, New England's led the way with um, privateer vessels but yet we get someone from that region who's now a critic of the uh, practice. Well, it doesn't have to be confined to just one region where people are opposed to something. I mean, even um, 
in times of unification, uh, it is fair to say that there is someone out there who is opposed uh, to something. The bigger question it is, will, I mean, can that person work out his differences so that it doesn't become a um, thorn in everyone else's um, bushes with regards to where the person stands uh, politically? So this fellow's name is William Whipple Jr. He was a Continental Congress delegate from New Hampshire. He was also a Declaration of Independence signer, and he was a military officer at the Battle of Saratoga. So why did Mr. Whipple become such a fervent critic behind the practice of privateering? He believed that privateers themselves were responsible for depleting the Continental Navy of adequate numbers of men due to uh, financial purposes, yes, uh, given that uh, privateering did offer more money versus that of uh, being in the Continental Navy. But as for Mr. Whipple, he personally felt that the privateersmen were looking only after themselves. So in other words, by not being a part of the Continental or a part of uh, one's uh, state navy, by uh, working in the privateering industry, Mr. Whipple sees that um, industry as uh, one that represents I, me, myself. To him, the Continental and state navies are us, we, ourselves. But Mr. Whipple, you know, yes, he's entitled to his own opinion. But at the same time, should he is he entitled to his own facts? No. But it does turn out, folks, that the majority of privateersmen were the exact opposite of what, of what William Whipple had originally portrayed them as. Large numbers of privateersmen had acted honorably, or I should say professionally, while performing their jobs or duties out at sea. The majority of privateersmen attacked only British vessels or those vessels transporting British goods including treating prisoners humanely. However, there were some exceptions that did occur, and perhaps this is where Mr. Whipple could have, um, could have uh, demonstrated um, the use of evidence of in terms of uh, opposing uh, the privateering practice. Exceptions did occur where privateersmen engaged in actions considered unbecoming, we learned from the uh, previous uh, podcast um, episode that in 1775, leading up to, uh, leading up to or just after um, the time when uh, shots had been fired at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, you know there was uh, talk. There were talks about getting uh, can getting Canada, most no notably uh, Nova Scotia, to come along as the 14th uh, nation of a North American nation in terms of uh, in terms of joining the greater alliance against England and while uh, the 13 colonies in Nova Scotia did have a pretty good uh, relationship with uh, trade and all things uh, took uh, a turn for the uh, not so good uh, when American privateers raided um, towns in um, Nova Scotia, which unfortunately impacted existing relations between the 13 North American colonies. Some incidents took place involving privateersmen at sea whom went about stripping prisoners of their personal belongings. Some instances saw privateersmen claim prizes 
considered fair capture when in fact they were not even British goods, but instead goods, or let alone neutral goods, transported by Spanish and French ships. So how did Congress go about modifying these um, not-so-good uh, incidents, most notably privateersmen claiming prizes considered fair game when in fact they weren't British goods? Well, in 1780, Congress added new language into um, an existing um, privateering statute, which um, called for prohibiting um, from prohibiting uh, raiding um, neutral uh, ships. So, in other words, you can no longer raid a neutral ship. In other words, you can no longer attack it. Now, I don't, on the other hand, if this neutral ship were to attack your vessel, now what do you do in that case? To me, that's a good question because, you know, you have to, as a captain, you've got to think about your crew. You have to think about the well-being of your ship if you were deliberately out of nowhere attacked by a neutral ship. I don't know if that happened or not, but that's not to say that there could have been attempts in which um, incidents like that had potential to happen. And, of course, as the old saying goes, it only takes uh, one or two people to ruin it for everyone else. So, yes, these exceptions were unfortunate when uh, raids took place along um, Nova Scotia and uh, towns where uh, privateer um, raids had taken place, uh, which did have um, an unfortunate dent um, in uh, relations that uh, did not go for the – that did not um, – lead to uh, better outcomes, which probably did result in, in why uh, Nova Scotia became more of an ally with England. And yes, uh, was it right for some privateersmen at sea to go about stripping prisoners of their personal belongings? No, but yet it happened. So yes, it is unfortunate that the actions of a few people um, obviously had a negative impact on the majority who were um, law-abiding uh, privateersmen, but I think it's also fair to say even in times of war since um, the beginning of time that, and it's not just in times of war in general, ever since the beginning of time, we've always had situations where it only took one or two people to ruin it, to ruin it for everyone else who uh, abided by the rules. It doesn't make it right, but sadly it happens. What else did privateers directly uh, compete with the Navy on? Okay, so we've got some competition now here. And, um, you know, it's not so much money, folks. But when it comes to, uh, when, I, when I think of uh, competition, how about uh, competition in the form of uh, competing for um, essentials like cannons and gunpowder? Think about this, folks. Are these commodities in large supply in terms of their availability? They're not. They're not. Gunpowder, um, including cannons, are overall, they are very limited in the overall total supply availability. Privateer owners were the ones that often had the bigger pockets. And what I mean by the bigger pockets, folks, how about... Um, we could say, you know, like big wallets, big wallets that have large um, reserves of money, which meant a greater likelihood of being able to outbid 
the government when it came to accessing such things as cannons and gunpowder. So think about this. If there's one thing the government is struggling um, in terms of being able to stay afloat with uh, getting access to um, essentials, it's it's from within. They're, they're dealing with uh, privateer owners who have more money than the government itself. But at the same time, is it fair to say that the privateer owners are being selfish? No. As a matter of fact, uh, towards the end of this uh, podcast segment, we're going to learn how privateer owners did, in fact, help the government out. So it could be fair to say that we are looking at... Um, what do you call it? We're looking at a win-win situation where, on you know, we're starting out where we're seeing the privateer, privateer owners outbidding the government, but we're going to learn before it's all said and done with how the privateer owners, in the end, will be able to come to the government's aid when the help is greatly needed. Now, as we all know, um, we've learned about him, uh, Mr. John Brown. Of course, when we think of John Brown, we think of uh, the famous John Brown who led the infamous raid on Harper's Ferry. Of course, in the late in the mid 19th century, uh, Harper's Ferry was in Virginia, not West Virginia at the time. But of course, we now know it in today's time as Harper's Ferry, West Virginia. But this John Brown during the American Revolution, um, we've learned about him from a previous uh, episode. And, of course, Brown University is named after Mr. John Brown, who is a uh, prominent uh, merchant from Providence, Rhode Island, where Brown University is today. Mr. Brown owned um, foundries. And if any of you aren't sure what a foundry is, uh, think of uh, a workshop. So by owning foundries, Mr. Brown is overseeing the uh, production of essential commodities like, say, uh, cannons, for example, and these cannons are going to be um, used for uh, for his uh, fleet of uh, privateer vessels. Remember, if uh, Mr. Brown has a foundry, not just so much a foundry that can produce things like cannons, isn't it fair to say that he's got ownership in multiple vessels? Uh, historians know um, that the Browns, that the Brown family, uh, by the time the revolution started, they had owned about 60 or 70 vessels. So this family um, obviously has uh, made a fortune, all right. And because their fortune is so strong, the means of being able to own more than five vessels is not an issue under no circumstances. So, yes, for uh, Mr. John Brown, he prefers the use of his own privateers versus that of naval ships, and it also pertained uh, to involving instances of selling. Other than cannons and gunpowder, uh, privateers and, na- and the Navy competed with one another over such things as food, rope, and other provisions essential for going out to sea. And I could see how food would have been something that, um, that there would have just been a lot of uh, competition for. You know, it's one thing to go out to sea... But if you're going to be out on the waters, say, more than two months, good luck with um, with ensuring that your food's going to um, stay um, fresh. It's going to stay um, clean because historians know that um, that if you were out at sea for three or four months, 
there was a very strong likelihood that your food supply could go bust. You know, think about it, folks. No refrigerators. Uh, we still have a ways to go before refrigeration comes about. But, you know, it's a very delicate situation uh, in terms of uh, what is available um, accessibility-wise. Now, exactly uh, how many Continental Navy warships were functioning or in full use along the Atlantic Ocean's waters during the Revolutionary War. Okay, uh, I know I mentioned something earlier, and I know I'd said that the number was not anywhere near 100, but I'll give you a number, folks. The number range is between um, 50 and 70. The answer is 60. That's the number of uh, Continental Navy warships that were functioning in full use along the Atlantic Ocean's waters uh, during the Revolutionary War's duration. However, most of these um, warships were, most were built as warships, whereas others were converted merchantmen. Some were borrowed from private owners, others uh, came about um, as being captured uh, vessels that were placed into um, into service with the U.S. Navy. Now, how about the cost of covering the Continental uh, Navy, Naval Fleet? Believe it or not, folks, it stood between twelve and a half and thirteen and a half million dollars, and that was a lot of money for that day and time. I can't imagine what it would cost now. Somewhere well high up into the millions, probably. But the overall uh, cost throughout the war was around 16% of uh, congressional um, budget for covering the Continental Navy fleet. But here's a disadvantage, folks, that Congress, um, in terms of what Congress is lacking. Congress has no power to levy taxes. In other words, Congress can't raise taxes. In a t There's nothing um, in the guidelines that says that Congress can raise taxes, not even during a time of war. So what is Congress having to rely upon, folks? Well, for one, they're having to rely upon paper money that, as we all know, that has little or no true value. It may be worth something today, but come tomorrow, it's... It's gonna. It could do a complete 360. But we're also having to rely on foreign loans. That is, say, money from France, money from um, from uh, Holland. Uh, I know that uh, I read somewhere where when John Adam during the uh, Revolutionary War, John Adams went overseas to secure a loan from uh, from a bank in Holland, and he was able to get the loan um, approved. But the bottom line is, folks, is that America, even during the Revolutionary War, I mean, yes, France has lent us money, but at the same time, it's uh, we are a lot of our money is coming in from a foreign aid, in in the form of uh, loans, which has basically become the chief uh, funding uh, source. Other problems, besides. Um, you know, not being able to levy taxes on Congress's end. Other problems um, now arise. Where, where is Congress going to find um, skilled shipbuilders? You know, think about it, folks. It's one thing to have a naval ship in um, 
ready to go, but how are you going to go about constructing naval ships if you do not have um, the right people to do the job, such as uh, skilled shipbuilders? That's a challenge right there. How about finding the right materials? And if you have the right materials, you have um, adequate shipbuilders, what about a uh, schedule in terms of going about coordinating uh, the ship con construction of uh, ships? Okay, I mean, and then, okay, if, if coordinating ship construction schedules is challenging enough, what about paying bills per work on each ship being built? You know, one ship might cost X amount of money, but then you've got two other ships that are going to be of different uh, cost range estimates. So this is where um, we're really stuck between a rock and a hard place. If Congress doesn't have the power to levy taxes, then how can it? Then how can the government go about generating further revenue that would uh, be geared towards uh, building uh, more ships? But at the same time, just because you build more ships, it doesn't mean that the work itself automatically gets done on time either. So there's really not enough sufficient time to go about making wood suitable. Vessels, or I should say naval vessels, in use were simply of different qualities, which required major investments of materials and money in getting them into a fighting shape. Sometimes we have to be reminded that even in, the, even in this uh, war against England, that America is on borrowed time. Yes, she may have resources to do things, which is great. I mean, we have learned that uh, some merchantmen were able to uh, provide Congress with gold and silver coins as a means of, you, as a means of greater funding for the uh, war effort. But at the same time, you know, not everybody is going to be able to get their access on hard gold or uh, let alone silver. So whenever we can find these uh, valuable prizes based upon what uh, privateering results have uh, yielded, it is a big deal. Considering that uh, Congress uh, probably more often than not did spend more time in the red than it ever did in the green. Red meaning deficit, green uh, surplus. Did uh, the Continental Navy have uh, successes in capturing British Royal Navy warships? Well, it turns out, folks, that uh, the Continental Navy, despite being small, and it may not have um, been as grand as uh, being out on the waters as a privateersman, the Continental Navy did have success. The Continental Navy went about seizing 12 British warships, Many were small, with probably no more than 20 cannons. But you know what? To me, that's a, uh, that's a big accomplishment. Capturing 12 British warships is better than none. Now, while the Navy focused on transporting diplomats to protecting state merchants, state merchant vessels, I should say, naval ships had successes in raiding commercial shipping. However, in combat, uh, the Continental Navy folks uh, lost 28 vessels. 28 vessels that were both uh, captured or destroyed. 
So if the Continental Navy really had only about 60 vessels that were fully operational throughout the, the conflict, uh, I did the math, uh, 28 into 60, that's uh, 47%. So 47% of the Continental Navy's fleet is impacted. In other words, that percentage yielded both uh, captured and destroyed uh, vessels. Now, there were a total of 13 frigates that were approved by Congress, but only seven of the 13 original frigates made it to sea. The frigates were the uh, ships of war, and believe it or not, folks, none of them survived to see the British surrender at Yorktown, Virginia on October the 19th of 1781. The other six frigates were burned or sunk as a means of uh, preventing them from getting captured by British forces. I know it sounds crazy to think that, um, that you would be willing to uh, burn your own ships just because you're afraid that the enemy could have potential to capture them. You know, why not go place them in a secure location where the enemy can't find them? Well, here's the thing, folks. We don't have um, facilities big enough to um, hold these ships to where they would not um, be able to uh, fall into the hands of the enemy. Sure, we could, you know, take a couple of the ships and get them to the nearest port uh, village or port town, but there's no guarantee that the British, there's no guarantee that the port town itself would be immune from a British raid attack along the waters. I think it's fair to say that we learned from a previous podcast episode or two back how when uh, Benedict Arnold um, unfortunately defected over to the side of the British that he led a raid on New London, Connecticut, where the British um, destroyed over 140 buildings, left over 100 people homeless. They destroyed every uh, boat that was or vessel that was tied up along the uh, docks and the um, in the uh, what do you call it the port of um, New London. Nothing was left spared. So the bottom line is that yes, we could you know yes, it would be easy to think oh we could you know take some of these vessels and put them in um, more uh, secure locations. But you know, number one, we don't have there wasn't always time on our side to do that. And two, what about the manpower? Who's going to keep watch over these thing over these uh, vessels? And who's to say that even if we have enough guardsmen to patrol the vessels? Who's not to say that we may not have enough manpower to um, to uh, retaliate in the midst of a um, surprise enemy raid attack by the British? So, sadly, there it was probably better to destroy the um, to uh, burn the vessels rather than um, surrendering them over to the enemy. Now, uh, one ship uh, did get um, completed, but it but it took six years to complete the vessel. It, would be, it was the Navy's largest ship at 74 guns. She was known as the America. The America never uh, was able to uh, see any action during the Revolutionary War, but in 1782 she was given to France as a uh, gift, and the remaining naval ships were uh, sold. There again, they were sold as a means of keeping them out of uh, British hands. The U.S. Navy did prevail, um, 
in one sense by conducting raids on uh, Caribbean supply depots, which were of, which would have been of essential use for uh, the British, given um, the supply depots to me would have been obviously for uh, munitions purposes. And what do you know, um, America? What do you know? The Americans had success. Um, Especially with uh, cap with uh, raiding the supply depots, they were able to bring home um, greater supplies of gunpowder. Uh, Navy captains like John Barry inflicted harm on British commerce to seizing nearly 200 prizes. The Continental Navy represented one entity, 13 colonies who made up the newly created United States. The Army and the Navy were both alike where they each brought people from every state together for a unified purpose. Independence from England, freedom from tyranny, a.k.a. harsh rule. Here's something that we probably need to uh, think about because, you know, we've been talking a lot about the competition between uh, privateering and that of uh, being in the state or continental navy. If privateering didn't exist, could the Navy have fared somewhat better? Let's think about that. Now, you know, if privateering didn't exist, could the Navy have fared somewhat better? The answer is not yes and it's not no, but it just so happens to be both yes and no. The yes side would have meant that the Navy itself could have pursued recruiting officers and sailors without distractions from outside sources who offered better money advantages, like privateers, privateering rather. The no side would have meant Congress still being in the hole when it came to struggles for general funding of building warships. Absence of privateers would not have automatically assured a more effective navy. Without privateers, the Navy alone would have struggled to keep the enemy at check long-term along the waters. So let's keep in mind, folks, yes, the Navy did have about 60 vessels in operation throughout the war's duration. But isn't it fair to say that, that there were not just hundreds but yet thousands of privateer vessels? Yes. And isn't it fair to say that that the more privateer vessels you have out on the waters, is it fair to say that that was a, a better check and balance system for the Navy? Yes, because the Navy couldn't be everywhere at every given point. Yes, the Navy certainly did its part in disrupting um, the British um, flow, not just so much from a commercial standpoint, but the U.S. Navy certainly did come up big at times in disrupting the British from um, inflicting um, harm on, um, on say, innocent civilians. Uh, the U.S. Navy certainly did its part in, um, in disrupting uh, the greater flow of munitions supply. But yet one, one branch of this conflict can't uh, resolve or, or fix all the problems, let alone can't win everything. It has to be a greater effort where it involves everyone, whether it's on a battlefield or, um, or out on the waters. Everyone has to work together as a team, and had it not been for privateering, we may not have won the war. Yes, we were, 
Yes, we did well on the battlefield. Yes, there were highs and lows. But sometimes it just takes extra uh, forces to really make all the difference. And to me, that's where privateering um, was truly the savior. Did privateering represent problems to the Continental Army? You know, here I am talking about all this good stuff, and now all of a sudden it's like doing a complete 360. But we still need to talk about it. Can't be ignored. Yes, like with the Navy, uh, privateers were competing with the Army. Not just not from a money standpoint, folks, but how about for munitions like gunpowder, including general supplies, but most importantly, manpower. Direct competition for recruits became the greatest concern facing the Continental Army. I would, I, I think it'd be fair to say that pr probably this was one of the biggest concerns, uh, perhaps throughout the war's duration, but more so during the early years. Let's um, take into take into um, consideration a, a general by the name of Charles Lee. And he is uh, connected to the famous uh, Lee, fa to the well-known Lee family in Virginia, who uh, was is related to the Custises and the Carters. So you know, whenever you hear um, the Lee family, you you can also think of Charles Lee. Now, uh, Charles Lee was second in command to General George Washington. That tells you right there where General uh, Charles Lee's uh, status is uh, within the inner circle. He issued a warning, including a request per the letter, per a letter he sent to New England governors come November of 1776. So that's uh, four months after Congress had officially declared its separation from England once and for all. The letter that Charles, General Charles Lee wrote had to do with the perils brought on by recruiting aimed at depriving the greatest need fulfilled. What do you think? What is the? What do you think truly was, in fact, the greatest um, fulfillment that uh, faced uh, deprivation even early on in the war, or had potential to face um, great deprivation? Maintaining an army. You know, it's one thing for men to come and go, and is it fair to say that even in late 1776? The Continental Army is facing a crisis, yes, because the summer of 1776, while yes, we had some, we had reasons to be joyful in terms of um, renouncing our allegiance to the crown, we uh, were not in good shape come uh, the Battle of New York. Uh, the British routed American forces, Washington was on the move constantly, um, it was just not a good picture. And so after the New York uh, campaign, desertions started occurring left and right. Uh, people, or soldiers let alone, were no longer um, embodied by the cause. They felt that, that n because nothing was going right, that, the, that it, it just was no longer worth fighting for. So, you know, yes, we've got success along the waters, which is great, but for General Charles Lee... What worries him more than anything else is that if people, is that if our numbers don't um, get better, not only are we not going to be able to maintain a continental army, but who's to say that this uh, cause for independence is still going to uh, 
remain alive. In other words, if we don't have the numbers, it's just a matter of time before the flames it, itself or the flames themselves become completely extinguished. So, so again, uh, General Charles Lee, he wrote um, a letter to the New England governors and uh, advised them about the um, greatest uh, needs, uh, or I should say the greatest need that uh, required attention, meaning um, maintaining an army whose numbers were dependent upon uh, greater uh, long-term outcomes. Well, the New England governors did comply with uh, General Charles Lee's written request to where the start of 1777 saw privateers be forbidden from departing their hometown ports. However, uh, how do you all think uh, privateer owners felt about New England governors complying with General Charles Lee's written uh, request? Well, for starters, they staunchly opposed the measure and therefore went about complaining right away. You can please some people, but you're not going to be able to please everybody, even in, uh, in a time of uh, warfare. Some privateer owners already had invested large sums of money in vessels ready to set sail. Supporters of privateering movement proclaimed privateers had made essential contributions to the greater war effort and should not be held back. Some ship owners deliberately ignored restrictions already in place and allowed their vessels to sail. But the majority of privateers stayed in place, in other words, by remaining at their port towns until uh, they were given actual clearance to go. Late March of 1777 saw the Massachusetts General Court go about temporarily lifting restrictions given the state's residents faced shortages of items from sugar, molasses, rum, cocoa, salt, wool. The shortages also had a major impact on the Continental Army. So we're not just talking about adventures at sea, folks, in terms of coming up big and, um, and capturing prizes that will benefit just those on, who are fighting along the waters. But how about those captured prizes going towards that can aid the Continental Army? So it's a double-edged sword in this case that's actually working, that would work out well for both uh, parties. Did privateering uh, serve as a great economic asset for coastal towns and cities? Yes, many businesses were able to remain open during the war, which in turn led to establishing new jobs along with amassing new fortunes. Uh, the money which uh, privateersmen made allowed them to better provide for their families as well as adding an extra boost to local economies where they resided. Goods brought in from privateers helped relieve existing shortages of necessities, but per each prize being auctioned also meant a new flow of commodities. What kind of commodities, folks? How about rum, beef, flour, sugar, tobacco, lumber, coal, salt? My gosh, I mean, that's quite a, an impressive list of... Uh, of uh, captured uh, prizes that um, could lead to not just a new flow of commodities, but how about a new flow of goods that uh, people can be um, more dependent upon where prior to the outbreak of war, some of those goods uh, many people might not have had any kind of true access to. This one I thought was um, 
was to me it was beyond impressive. You know, we've learned a lot about how thus privateer vessels um, captured many prizes. This one, to me, is the granddaddy of them all. In October of 1776, uh, the Boston privateer Speedwell brought into the port of Marblehead an immense, an immense array of uh, British cargo prizes. Here we go with some startling numbers. Startling numbers for the better, though. But to me, it's, um, it's quite impressive. How about 57,000 pounds of bread? 57,000 pounds of bread, folks. I mean, I can't imagine how many uh, mouths that would feed. But, but I do know that, um, think about this, two years earlier in 1774, what did Parliament do? Under the uh, Coercive, a.k.a. Intolerable Acts, one of the uh, pieces of legislation was the uh, Boston Port Act, which closed the Port of Boston, Port of Boston. Not only were uh, thousands of people left um, out of, out of uh, work, but how about food shortages? Wouldn't they have loved to have had 57,000 pounds of bread at that time, two years earlier? Absolutely. But the bottom line is now, there is 57,000 pounds of bread. How about 8,000 pounds of pork? How about 16,000 pounds of beef? to 12,000 pounds of flour, 4,200 pounds of rice, 4,000 pounds of raisins, 256 bushels of peas, 257 bushels of oatmeal, 540 gallons of whale oil, including vinegar, to 3,500 gallons of rum, 4,600 pounds of butter, and lastly, 5,500 candles. Well, candles would certainly come in play, folks, because that's really our only form of, um, of electricity in 1776. We don't, have, um, we don't have automatic light switches where we can, uh, with our thumb or finger, where we could just turn them on and off. Our electricity comes from a candle, and more often than not, if you wanted to check on family members in your house, you carried a candle uh, with you, so that and you and if you had a uh, glass case to put over the candle, this way it, it would guide you um, going up the steps and down the steps so that you uh, did not fall and hurt yourself. Uh, but the bottom line, folks, is that candles really at one time were our um, primary form of electricity. All of these uh, captured prizes really were considered um, cap a capture for the ages. Was privateering itself considered to be a risky uh, business operation for everyone involved? Uh, yes, for one, many privateer owners, including investors, lost money when ships got captured by the British, along with not meeting expectations when vessels themselves didn't come home with top-notch prizes. I guess we should be reminded, folks, that just because we secured some, we secured prizes, or let's say, a particular vessel secured uh, prizes while out on the water, we must keep in mind that they that not everyone came home with, um, with the grandest of prizes. Yes, coming away with a couple of prizes may have been better than none, but not everyone always struck it rich right away.
This one I found hard to believe, but yet it's true. Major General Nathaniel Green, of course, who uh, was obviously the savior in terms of um, in terms of his leadership as the uh, general of the Southern Continental Army uh, by by the time just before 1780 ended. We should be rem be reminded that uh, Nathaniel Green was a native of Rhode Island, and his uh, family was heavily involved in the uh, privateering industry during the time of the Revolutionary War. His family lost out big time, and uh, his family had invested in around 20 privateers. Some got lost to British forces, and only a small uh, handful came away with prizes not considered uh, top of the line. So we have to remember that not everyone struck it rich. And yes, many, you know, there were many who did in, invest and yet lost a lot of money. Think of it as like gambling, at a, like at a gambling casino. You know, um, I remember my dad saying one time, you know, if you're, if one was worth about $10 million and they lost $1,000 at a gambling, at a station in a gambling casino, Yes, on, on one hand, it would be unfortunate to lose $1,000, but yet you could afford it. If you're a, an average family where, where one spouse is making, where a spouse is making between thirty dollars and $40,000 a year, and you go out and gamble away $1,000 at the casino, that money is going to be very hard to replace in a short period of time. So for, for many privateer owners who lost money, the there was simply no way of being able to recover it overnight. So yes, when you invested money in privateer vessels and they went out to sea, you were taking a risk, pretty much a gamble of sorts. You know, it was 50-50 that, you know, that your ship's, that your vessel's going to come home with some prizes, or there's a 50% chance your vessel might not even make it back home. Uh, many privateer owners like John Langdon of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Joseph Peabody of Salem, Massachusetts, to Blair McLennican, and Israel Thorndike of Beverly, Massachusetts, either became rich or richer during Revolutionary War as their vessels prevailed in capturing prizes deemed, uh, deemed great value worth and accumulated by privateering owners was heavily invested after... Um, war's end, leading to America's new trading expeditions into India and China, never seen uh, previously before. You know, maybe it's fair to say that this is, you know, what we call one small step for uh, man, but one big step for mankind. How did um, privateer owners go about helping Congress, which often faced deficits regarding war funding. Uh, remember, remember I said early on about how Congress was often um, in the red than they were really ever were in the green? Well, for starters, owners to privateers, or I should say owners to privateer vessels of chance in Congress, went about giving Congress just over $22,000 in the form of silver and gold coins which had far greater value over all paper money. Nathaniel Tracy of Newburyport, Massachusetts, I remember um, we had talked about him from an earlier podcast segment episode, 
Uh, Mr. Tracy was the owner of 47 privateers, whom captured a total of 120 British prizes. He went about giving away $167,000 to the Continental Army. Very generous. 1780, or rather the year 1780, saw leading people or citizens of Philadelphia unite together by establishing the Bank of Pennsylvania, whom sought to acquire provisions for the Continental Army. The Bank of Pennsylvania was able to relieve a near-bankrupt Congress. How many uh, newspapers throughout the states recorded the Revolutionary War as it unraveled? Well, I can tell you this much. Um, around the time uh, for the first shots were fired around the world in, seven, in April of 1775, historians know that there were about 38 newspapers in existence um, within the 13 uh, colonies or states. But as, but as for regards to the answer for the question I just addressed a moment ago, the answer is 30. There were 30 newspapers um, that fo that uh, went about recording the Revolutionary War as it unraveled. Many scores of articles focused on privateers, ranging from tense battles fought at sea to detailed accounts behind captured prizes and goods brought to American shores and eventually sold at public auctions. There were plenty of articles that praised privateers for disrupting Britain's trade practices. The majority of newspaper articles covering privateering during the Revolutionary War turned out to be positive. The positive stories featured bolstered American people's beliefs that the greater war effort or mission could still be possibly won in the midst of setbacks endured by the Continental Army, and when I think of uh, big setbacks, how about the uh, 1776 New York campaign? Although positive news from American battlefield victories to privateer and naval successes along the waters um, enhanced American morale, tragedies regarding prisoner conditions and treatment, most notably um, ships at New York's Wallabout Bay, angered American patriots to where their sheer determination for independence never wavered, even when the going got tough. Well, folks, we've uh, covered a lot of ground in this uh, podcast segment, and even though it is fair to say, and it's true, that there was a conflict uh, from within with um, with greater competition amongst the privateers of uh, the Continental and State Navies, including the Continental Army. Everyone still came through the clutch when it mattered most. You know, yes, there were distractions. Yes, there were differences in opinions. But, and, and yes, we had um, people who, who were opposed to privateering, like Mr. William Whipple of New Hampshire, Despite all of the, despite whatever um, negative uh, skepticism there may have been, privateering did prevail. And I must say that without privateering, I don't know how we might have been able to have won this war. It, it, you know, we often think, oh, just because there's George Washington, that, you know, without George Washington, there's no Continental Army. On one hand, that's true, but it takes so many other uh, pieces to make the greater puzzle 
be all the more effective behind the cause that's um, being waged. Well, I appreciate your time as always, and thank you for being such ardent listeners. And believe it or not, folks, when I'm on the air again next, we will be uh, discussing the epilogue to Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution by Eric J. Dolan. Wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe, and uh, thank you once again for being such ardent supporters. Without you all, I don't know where I would be in terms of uh, podcasting, but once again, thank you uh, for just doing a great job of listening. Take care and stay safe.